In today's episode, we're talking all about China and the business of sustainability. From Blue Tribe Media, this is the Good Business Podcast, the show where we talk to business leaders, social entrepreneurs and innovators about aligning profit with purpose and how you can make doing good, good for business. Now here's your host, James McGregor. In this episode, I'm talking with John Paybon, who's the founder and chief advisor at Fulcrum Strategic Advisors. Now, I'd describe John as an expert on China, but as you'll hear, uh, John would say that if anyone tells you they're an expert on China, then you should probably run the other way because there's just too much to learn about this 5,000-year culture for anyone to truly be an expert. But before founding Fulcrum Strategic Advisors, uh, he's worked at the United Nations, McKinsey's, AC Nielsen, uh, and as a consultant at BSR, which is one of the world's largest sustainability-focused business networks. Now, John's really passionate about the opportunities in China, and for the past decade, he has chronicled the societal impacts of China's economic rise in his blog, John's Little Green Book, and has been named one of the world's top 100 voices on modern China. Uh, He's a regular contributor to major magazines and speaks to an array of global audiences on issues of sustainability policy and societal change. In this episode, we hear about his journey from his dreams of a career in music in California to his move to China and the opportunities he sees for business and sustainability as the world pivots for the Asian century. He's also a gladiator for good, uh, although, as he says, a very pragmatic one, and so he fits in here perfectly on the Good Business Podcast. So let's check it out. Let's kick off, and why don't you tell the listeners uh, who you are? Absolutely. So my name is John Papon. I am the founder and chief advisor at Fulcrum Strategic Advisors. Um, I consider myself sort of, for those of you who've listened or watched Scandal before, the Olivia Pope of the modern business world, uh, because I'm very happy to challenge businesses to ideally improve themselves. And that usually comes with a lot of things they don't want to hear. Sure. Okay. And so what is, tell us a little bit about Fulcrum Strategic Advisors. You know, what, what, what do they do? What's your, what's your, what's your elevator pitch? <laughs> sure. So we work in the risk management space. We're a risk management consultancy, but we focus on three particular areas. So the first is geopolitics, and that's especially around the shift between West and East and the rebalancing that's going on in the world. The second area is sustainability. Uh, I come out of a sustainability background, and that's, of course, very big in the risk management space for companies. And the third area is around communications and marketing and how we get the message out. And uh, what what would you say your superpower is? I like that superpower part. <laughs> uh, the superpower <laughs> probably is making businesses uncomfortable, but hopefully that gets them to change. <laughs> yeah, right. Cool. All right. So, so, so take us back in time now a little. I'm really interested in you know, the backstory about how you got to do what you're doing today because yeah as a uh, I guess a young man in California I mean how does a young man in California end up in China looking at strategic advice integrated with sustainability yeah it all sort of happened by accident I suppose but uh, you know if we go back in time a little bit I actually went to school with the intention of studying music which I kind of did for a while um, uh, played I've played clarinet basically my whole life so that was sort of the idea I went to school and about Two years into university, I kind of realized, wait a minute, there's no money in this, and it's really hard to get a job. So I, uh, you know, I switched into political science. Political science was actually the very last required class uh, that I took at university, and I sort of fell in love with it from there. So from then on out, it was sort of always being in politics or in public good or some sort of public service. And that eventually morphed into this idea of working with the United Nations. So uh, moving from California to New York to get close to the United Nations, maybe network my way, you know, in a couple cocktail parties or whatnot. 
And uh, luckily enough, I actually got a job at the United Nations while I was doing my graduate degree. So I was able to sort of do those two things together, which uh, was very fortunate. And then that sort of morphed into wanting to do a little hop into the private sector or working with the private sector to expand out my experience. Um, And then sort of fast forwarding a few years, going to China, I sort of went to China on a vacation. I think it was like 2008. And that was the time in China where everyone, all the expats were living on these massive expat salaries. You know, you'd go to dinner with 30 people and people would be fighting over the check and everyone was really living large. And then I went back to New York. It was the middle of the recession. Everyone was out of a job. Everyone was crying poor. And I just thought to myself, you know, I had a good run in New York. Why don't we go to Shanghai and try life out there? And uh, the rest is sort of history. So when we get to sustainability, I sort of tried to figure out a way in Shanghai, which is a very, very commercially minded city. How do I do sustainability or sorry, how do I do sort of my public good in a place that's so commercial? So I kind of fell into sustainability. And I think a lot of folks, uh, you know, around that time probably did the same thing. I don't even think we called it sustainability back then. It was probably more CSR or philanthropy. Mm. Um, And that sort of morphed into more strategic sustainability, which is where I sit now. It's uh, not so much on the philanthropy and CSR side, although, of course, that is very important stuff. But I sit more on the operational, uh, you know, dealing with sort of C-level people in the private sector. Yeah. So, I mean, so going back maybe one step there, so you, you're almost from the outset from, you know, where you were studying music, seem to have this interest in public good or doing something good in the world. I mean, was there, growing up, was there something, was there some influence in your life that drove that? I mean, where did, where did that where did that sort of uh, desire to influence the world come from, do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I was actually sitting down with someone uh, last week at a, a little bit of a networking event, and this issue kind of came up or question kind of came up. And I don't know, it just, it sounds kind of hokey, but I think always within me, there was this sense of needing to not necessarily be a do-gooder, although I, I do consider myself sort of a, a, an altruist, but there is more of a making sure the scales were balanced sort of thing. So I guess I I would call myself a pragmatic altruist, right? So making sure that, uh, you know, the message gets out there the right way, or that there's a sense of equality in different things. And of course, you know, I, uh, like everybody else want to do my little part to change the world and to make an impact and uh, selfishly to, uh, you know, to leave my mark and be remembered, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. So I describe myself as a bit of a green pragmatist as well. So you know, you have the the pessimists of the world who say you know the um, you know that the sky is falling and climate change is it's the it's our moral purpose and we need to do it. And they say the glass is sort of half empty. And then you got the optimists of the world who are you know uh, we'll we'll sort it out. We can solve the problems. Who see the sort of the glass is half full. Uh, I'm the pragmatist in the middle where I look at the glass and I think actually that glass is way over designed. It's actually twice as big as it needs to be to hold that amount of liquid. Uh, and I think for sustainability professionals, that's a really important um, being pragmatic in getting to the impact of the outcome you want is actually a really important way. Otherwise, you end up just getting super frustrated day to day. And so, those, those yeah. other two groups don't like us much. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, they're all part of it. You've got to bring that's them along, right? right? So um, I think it's yeah, it's, it's those polar extremes, but really the I think the gray in the middle is where the solutions the solutions lie. So so I'm interested. In, and what do you define as sustainability? So yeah, you mentioned like you, know, you didn't really use the word sustainability. It was CSR. Like what 
what, what was it that you thought you were doing in terms of sustainability at first? Yeah, again, sort of falling into it and realizing after a while that that's what I was doing. Um, I, I take a little bit of a different approach or a broader approach to sustainability because I know when you mention sustainability to people, they automatically think environmentalism or the green aspect of things, uh, conservation, ecology, which is certainly one aspect of sustainability. Uh, when I'm talking about sustainability, it's more of the umbrella term that encompasses anything around I suppose, building a, a better future or a better world. So that could include human rights and labor rights. It could include uh, board remuneration and KPIs. It could include supply chain and logistics. Of course, it includes CSR, which is, uh, for me, uh, I interpret that more as, as philanthropy and charity, strategic philanthropy as well. Uh, it includes ecology and the, the green movement. So all of those things sit under this larger umbrella of sustainability um, I, being perfectly honest, I'm not a greenie. Uh, I love my international travel and getting on a plane. I love my iPhone. I love my creature comforts. I don't think we should be going back to the dark ages. Uh, so that's never really been my focus within the sustainability world. And there are plenty of people who are experts in that. So I leave it to them. Uh, mine's always been sort of, again, this, this pragmatic approach to engaging the private sector. I'm a, I'm a strong believer that if we are to build a more sustainable world in the future, or hopefully now, the private sector is the, the actor that is going to be driving this. They have the capital, they have the stakeholders, they have the access that both governments and individual people, they just can't muster. So I think it's really down to the private sector. And unfortunately, for the past 30 or 40 years, we've really held them at arm's length. So what I'm trying to do is bring them into the fold to show how, from a business perspective, sustainability makes pure business sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the that's the entire theme of this podcast, right? The idea of you know making the business doing good, good for business, and I think that's where that pragmatic approach around making sure you develop sustainability strategies and solutions that support that particular private sector business's core business. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's yeah you know, making capital, building buildings, or um, you know selling coffee. The, whatever sustainability strategy you have need to be mutually supportive of whatever that the core mission or core goals of that organization are. Absolutely. So you know, you've decided, you've seen this opportunity to move to Shanghai. Tell us about you know, Fulcrum Strategic Advisors. When did you did you set that up as soon as you arrived? What was the... I mean, what was the problem that you were solving with the, for your clients with that? Yeah, business? absolutely. And I, I didn't set it up when I first arrived. I was working with an American firm in their marketing department, which sort of um, honed my chops in, in the marketing and communications area, which has proven to be quite useful. Uh, it seemed like a little tangential step, but uh, it, it worked out to my advantage. Um, and then I was working with uh, BSR, the Business for Social Responsibility, who's sort of the McKinsey of the sustainability consulting world. Um, and we would engage a lot of major, you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 players uh, to develop strategies for them across all aspects of sustainability. And uh, the organization is an amazing organization. I encourage everybody to check them out. They do amazing work. Uh, but what I was noticing, particularly in China, I don't know about the rest of the world, but when I was sort of thinking through creating Fulcrum, in China, what would tend to happen is we would create amazing strategies or programs for a lot of these companies, but they would only stay on paper. They would never, uh, the companies tended not to uh, want to roll their sleeves up and actually do the dirty work of executing the strategies. So the idea behind Fulcrum initially was to go that next step and get these companies to execute in the way 
I saw that happening is through communications and getting the message out there. Um, one of the things that China lacks currently from a sustainability perspective is the strong business case within China from a Chinese company of why sustainability. We have these business cases all over the world, but for China, that doesn't really exist. So the idea was to get companies that are doing amazing things to start talking about it. I think a lot of times companies are a little hesitant to market the good that they're doing. Maybe they're worried about being perceived as not altruistic or greenwashing or whatever it might be. So my goal was to really get that message out there with these companies. And then, um, of course, as any any entrepreneur or business owner understands, these things tend to morph quite quite dramatically over time. Yeah. Um, so do, do these companies see risk in uh, – so last time, last time I was in Beijing, um, you know, I arrived there. The pollution was horrendous. You know, I think visibility was probably down to three or 400 metres at best. Um, and whilst I was there, um, the Chinese government announced that they were basically directing all the coal-fired power stations uh, around Beijing to switch to gas, to natural gas, uh, as a way of mitigating the pollution, even though the actual – Pollution and the smog issue was probably related more to uh, domestic vehicles, <laughs> not and not these super high tech um, power plants that they do have in uh, Beijing. There, um, so do, do companies see risk in that? And because you know, the Chinese government, it's it's not like a democracy where when the voters um, get upset around a, a minister's certain decision that it doesn't happen. You know, the, go- the government says we're going to do this, and that's what people do. Surely there are risks around these, you know, these significant environmental issues that are affecting people's day-to-day lives that could influence these companies. Absolutely. And I, I don't envy the job of the, the folks in Beijing and the, the government and what they have to do to manage 1.6 billion people and a, you know, a rapidly growing economy. Um, so th- there's a, a couple things in there. Certainly what we've seen over the past 40 years in the West is sort of this bottom-up approach to sustainability, you know, activism and, and the individual is the agent for change. China, they take the opposite approach. It's top-down. It's what I like to call eco-authoritarianism. So the government can flip the switch, like you said, off and on, on anything that they want. And given a lot of the geopolitical changes, particularly in, in my own home country and what's happened there, sort of seeding the, uh, the leadership within sustainability, China's been right there to fill in that vacuum and that space, not just in sustainability, but as we've seen on the news in a lot of different spaces. So with that, they've been very public about their investments and about the plans to reach their Paris commitments or other commitments around sustainability. And once they do these very public uh, announcements, they, they don't back down because they don't want to, uh, as we say, lose face. So the government is doing a lot when it comes to environmentalism. Um, the amount of money that they invest in, for example, green technology is just shocking to people. It's on the order of $500 billion with a B, US dollars every year. So that's twice as much as the whole EU. So they've really put a lot of emphasis on building a more sustainable country. And there's a reason for that. There's a couple things. So first is, uh, of course, there's an economic slowdown in China. It's not a slowdown on par with the rest of the world. It's still 6.87% growth, which is great, but it's still slowing down. So they're trying to encourage domestic consumption. They're trying to streamline operations within the country so they can sort of uh, put a buffer with the economics that are happening. And of course, underlying everything, and uh, you know, I hope I don't get my visa revoked for saying this, the number one fear of the government is that they will lose the mandate of the people. So even though it is not a democracy in the pure sense of the word, 
the the fear with the party is that people will no longer support them. So that could come from people getting tired of choking on pollution, drinking, you know, terrible polluted water, eating food that's going to get them sick. And the government knows this, which is also a, a part of the reason why they've been so forward with encouraging uh, building a more sustainable future. So by and large, long answer to your short question, uh, there are a, a huge amount of movements happening. And there's this massive sort of uh, chessboard that they're all trying to move the pieces around in a way that is going to help the country to evolve, but not shift things too fast to scare everybody off. Yeah. All right. So, so I wanted to go back a little bit to, um, you know, we sort of just went off on a bit of a tangent there, which was an interesting conversation, back to uh, <laughs> creating um, when you created your business. Um, look, what can you give us a story about um, you know, some, something, something happened in those early days and, and things that you, you probably might cringe about now um, in terms of how you went about doing that? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's really around forcing this message of sustainability because I thought I knew best. And, you know, as we, as we learn, we don't know best. The customer always knows best, you know, that old adage. And it's really true. You can, uh, you know, I, I can use so many different, uh, you know, adages. You can lead a horse to water. You can't get him to drink, all these sort of things. But I was pushing so hard with the sustainability message even though I realized people were tuning me out. And it was when I finally adjusted that message to basically be saying the same thing, just using different words, which is what I'm doing, right? Risk management around sustainability is a very different conversation than just pushing environmentalism or sustainability on people. So I think the biggest sort of cringeworthy thing that I look back on and go, God, why did I do that? Is just not being receptive and not listening to the audience, which as a marketer is a terrible thing. I should know better. <laughs> yeah. but it's also i think working in china you know if coming from a i guess the western culture you know business transactions are very are very transactional you know you, yeah, I'll, I'll do this if you do that um and working in china it doesn't necessarily work that way uh, and even just even just negotiation I, I, I recall one of my very early business negotiations on a project uh in china and at one point um the chinese partner we were working with um suddenly it really agitated him it was almost aggressive, and I thought maybe I've said something wrong and upset them. But over time, I learned that was just the flow of a negotiation. You know, the you know, signing of contracts was almost the beginning of negotiations. <laughs> um, so, so I'm interested in you know for people listening who have contemplated doing business in China, or maybe they're about to jump on a plane. Like, what's what's something really practical that you've learned from working in China that people could put into practice? Um, yeah, the second they got off the plane, for example. Yeah, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head with the big one. It's always around negotiations where things fall apart. Uh, and that's because we, as, as Westerners, we approach negotiations in a very different way. So uh, a lot of times in China, when dealing with Chinese clients, there is a very much a long-term vision and a long-term play to what they're doing. So you need to fit within that. You can't expect you know, an entire 5,000-year-old culture to bow to your ways. So you need to be flexible and you need to understand that it is not about short term, short termism. You know, we sit down for negotiation in the West and we know what we want to get out of it. And it's sort of done and dusted. People have other things to do. In China, it's relationship building at its purest sense. It is getting to know the family. It's getting to know what I can do for you and you can do for me. And then eventually, maybe after quite a long time, you might get to the point where you actually start negotiating. And it takes a very, very long time sometimes. But once you get to that point, you're sort of family. And then the negotiation, 
usually, unless something goes terribly awry, it sort of speeds through. And there are little tactics here and there, but it is a, it is a long game and there is a lot of patience involved. So for folks that you know, expect to get on a plane, go to a distributor and, you know, make a million dollars, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really important for people to understand that relationship basis. And this is a, a long game. So uh, you're not going to go over for one conference or one business trip and come back with a whole lot of contracts. Um, in, in some of no, I see it all the time. People come over on junkets with, you know, with different banks or whatever it might be. And they, they do a five city tour in three days, you know, and all of a sudden they're calling themselves a China expert. I'm sorry. I live, I've lived there for a decade and I don't call myself a China expert. And I always tell clients, if anybody comes to you and calls themselves a China expert, run the other way because they're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, There's no such thing. Yeah. And so so what's the, I mean, what, what do you think is the single biggest mistake you see regularly with um, you know, people, cl- clients who want to come in and enter China? Like what's, what's the one big mistake they consistently make? Yeah, they've been making it since the opium wars. It's the same one over and over again. They think the Chinese need your stuff. The Chinese don't need your stuff. <laughs> uh, they come in and they sort of think you can just plug and play whatever you know product you might have. You put it in the market and you're going to be successful. And then you know businesses sort of are, are shocked that they're not successful. No, it's just like every other market around the world where it takes proper market research, a proper strategy, proper understanding of consumers before you even consider launching your product into China. So it is not uh, it is not the Wild West like a lot of people think, and it's uh, certainly not an easy place to do business. But for some reason, people still keep making the same mistake. And I don't know who is pushing this message that it's easy to make money in China. It is certainly not. Um, that's not to dissuade anybody. There are so many opportunities in China. You just need to know, as with every other market, what your niche is, what your differentiator is, and how you're going to approach selling your products. Yeah. Can, can you give us an example of someone who's done that really well? Oh, man. Where do I start? Oh, really well. I thought you were yeah. going to say really badly. And uh, I, 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 I want to hear someone who's, <laughs> who's yeah, what, what do they do right and and what, what, were the, yeah, what they, how'd they go about it? Yeah. Uh, let me have a think on that. I think a lot of the folks in kind of fast, uh, fast food retail, so QSRs like uh, KFC is probably a really good example of a a uh, company that's come in and dominated the market. They were they had first mover advantage. They were the first uh, fast food restaurant to open in in communist China. So uh, they've done really well to adapt themselves to the market. So if you go into a KFC in in sh- the streets of Shanghai, you're not going to see probably many products that you would recognize if you went into one in Melbourne, for example. So they've really adjusted the products to meet the needs of the market, and because of that, they've done really really well. Right, great. And, and so, but what, what days so they they basically took a guess, Chinese customer centric focus. But what what else do you think they did? Um, I mean, getting product the product right for the market. I mean, that's a fundamental for any business. But was there anything else that they did particularly well? Do you think that made them successful in China? Yeah, I think it's just around marketing. It's around understanding and being a couple steps ahead of what needs to happen. China changes so fast, so it's very difficult, especially from a marketing and strategy perspective, to stay ahead of the curve and then to stay ahead of the competition, of course, particularly now with domestic competition being uh, heating up. It's it's quite difficult. But KFC and a lot of these really well-known multinational brands, uh, you can toss in McDonald's, you can toss in Pepsi and Coke, they've done really well to stay ahead of trends and to understand what's next for the consumer. Now, they're having problems recently because uh, the market is moving a lot faster than traditional Western R&D processes can move. 
But what they've done is they've sort of uh, KFC again. Yum China is a good example. Yum has uh, Yum China is its own separate entity now. It's been sold off from the main Yum uh, enterprise, and because of that, they're able to really focus on what the market needs and how to adjust their processes to meet the needs of the market faster than probably what would happen with Yum China or Yum uh, United States, for example. Yeah. Uh, and what, have you got an example maybe of companies that have uh, had a lot of success with, sustain, with a sustainability angle or even just having good sustainability performance coming in and setting up in China? Yeah, uh, those are usually in the supply chain area. So uh, I know we, we like to demonize this country or this company, but Walmart is an amazing example of a company that's come into China and has not only done well for themselves from a business perspective, but has done well for the country. Um, I worked a lot with Walmart when I was with BSR. And some of the programs, we would go into factories and we would run uh, women's empowerment programs where we would discuss things like uh, communications, education, personal health and well-being, family planning, et cetera, et cetera. And we would use an approach that essentially over the course of these engagements would touch hundreds of thousands of workers. And as I was saying at the beginning, that's something that the private sector can only do because they have access and capacity to really change lives. So Walmart is an amazing example. Other companies in sort of the supply chain area, the big textile companies like uh, The Gap, uh, also those in the technology space, so Dell and HP, those companies that have really been there from the beginning of the opening up of modern China from a business perspective have also done really well from a social perspective. Yeah, okay, great. So so if there's someone out there listening who you know, is thinking about um, either taking a new product in the China um, or even moving to China to work, um, what do you think? What's the one piece of advice you give to someone like that? There's lots of pieces of advice. The, the big one, I would only get one. I only get one. Yeah, I know, I only get one. That's the hard part. Uh, the big one is uh, not to repeat what we talked about earlier. I think the big one is to be flexible. So to understand that it's not your way or the highway, there is a, a flexibility and a give and take that's required to really be successful in China. And with that flexibility, you know, understand that things can come in from the side and you can sort of you know, dog leg in and out of different areas, and that's totally okay. So is there something that people can do to prep? So I know one of the things I ended up doing because I was doing quite a lot, doing a lot with Chinese companies is actually I went and learned basic Mandarin. So I went and did a course at university for a couple of months and literally only so I could introduce myself, um, say hello, ask a question, and then that literally basically ran, ran out of my capability to talk in Mandarin. Um, but what I found was that was like – an amazing way to break the ice because you showed respect uh, that you've taken that effort and I found that the the interactions I had after that uh, when I was able to do that were so much better than they were beforehand. Um, so so are there things like things like that do you think people could do before they go to China to sort of lay you know, get, set, set them off on the right foot? Sure, absolutely. I think language is definitely important. And as you mentioned, it doesn't require you to be fluent in Mandarin. I don't even think the Chinese are fluent in Mandarin. There's too much that goes on in the language. But to have enough of an understanding where you can show that respect is really it's critical in negotiations. Most likely, they're going to switch over into English at some point in the early conversation. So you don't need to worry that you're going to get caught up in having to speak Mandarin for three hours. Um, but it, it does show that respect that can get things off on the right foot. I think also having a strong understanding of history. And what I mean by that is know what to say and certainly know what not to say. We see companies all the time doing these slip ups with small cultural things that 
you sit back and go, God, why didn't anybody tell you don't say something like that because it's super offensive? Uh, but, you know, we see it time and time again using... Can you, can you give me an example? Yeah, what, so what I think it was Mercedes or BMW la- uh, earlier this year ran a full-page ad in one of the Chinese newspapers, except it had a quote from the Dalai Lama. And that's a, that's a no-no, but, you know, I'm yeah. sure whatever marketing genius was advising them thought that was a good idea. Small things like that, or we see a lot, of course, with the greater China versus China, Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan issue. And we see a lot, especially with fashion companies. Earlier this year, there was like four within a week that listed Taiwan and Hong Kong as different countries than China. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care where you stand on the issue. If you want to play on mainland China, you have to play by their rules. Yeah, yeah, good advice. So if people wanted to learn more or connect with connect with you, um, or yeah, they needed some advice, um, what's the best way for them to connect and get in touch? Yeah, definitely uh, LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. I use it all the time. So I'll reach out just under John Paybon on LinkedIn, and you can certainly find me and follow me. And don't feel uh, don't feel scared to reach out on a private message. That's perfectly fine. Sure. And what about uh, Fulcrum Strategic Advisors? Uh, same thing. So uh, we use a lot of, of LinkedIn as our interface, and I do the same with clients uh, because that is really uh, a good way to to access a broad network of people great okay all right well let's uh let's wrap up with what we call our mad minute so it's five questions in 60 seconds um although we've never ever kept to 60 seconds but <laughs> anyway ra- five rapid fire questions maybe i should change the name of it um all right so let's kick off so what's the best piece of advice you've ever received yeah so when i moved to new york i did a bit of uh, improv and the improv motto is yes and and that's really stayed with me throughout my whole career. Always say yes and. Yeah, that's a great tip. Actually, I had very similar advice from my, my very first mentor when I uh, graduated university. So yeah, definitely can uh, agree with that one. Now, uh, what's your favorite business book? Yeah, so it is called The Diamond Cutter. And it's by um, Geshe Michael Roach. It sort of looks at the intersection between uh, Buddhism and business. I'm not a Buddhist, but I found it very insightful. Fair enough. Uh, and so when you were a kid, what did you want, what did you want to be when you grew up? Yep, musician for sure. And what's your favorite quote? Yeah, so I, I sort of picked two. I have the pedestrian one, which is the Eleanor Roosevelt quote, which is, uh, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. I like that one. But then another one by a, a guy called Mike Dooley, who does this really amazing inspirational daily uh, emails that you get, sort of inspirational emails. And he always says that thoughts become things, so pick the good ones. And if you go back in time and give your 20-year-old self some advice, what would it be? Yeah, be flexible. Don't be so set in your ways. Uh, probably don't drink so much. I guess is probably in there as well. Um, and you know, just don't be so. Don't think you know what the North Star is. Be flexible to go in and out of uh, you know that journey. Great. All right, I think so. Thank you for your time. I think uh, this uh, you know the rise the rise of China and what the future holds is going to be uh, fascinating to watch. I think from a sustainability point of view, uh, I know China often gets made out to be um, you know, the person that's trying to stop things, but I also think they're a, such a huge piece of whatever future solutions uh, emerge and, sh- and shaping the future of the world. Uh, so it's been great to get insights. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us on the Good Business Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So that was John Paybon from Fulcrum Strategic Advisors. Now, there's actually 10 episodes of the Good Business Podcast so far, um, but I'd really like to actually know what you want to hear in the future. Uh, what, what have you liked so far? What haven't you liked? Um, so it really mean a lot to me if you could take a few minutes to complete a simple survey, uh, which you can find at www.bluetribe.co forward slash survey. 
Uh, and actually, if you do this, you'll actually make something great happen in the world, literally. But you'll have to check it out to see what I'm talking about. Also, make sure you subscribe, like, and share this episode. It does actually really make a difference to get the word out there about the podcast. Coming up in the next episode. I got introduced to a guy called Pastor Selva. He said there we were in the Sunday school with 12 kids. And all of a sudden, I, I heard the, we heard this amazing noise. And, and everybody was terrified. And I opened the door. And I looked. And, you know, there, uh, uh, not that far away, was this mass of water, like a wall of water, the like of which I've never seen. In the next episode, we hear about how a humbling moment associated with the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami let this change maker on a mission to create a movement that harnesses the power of small. Make sure you check it out. Well, that's it for another episode of the Good Business Podcast. I'm James McGregor. Until next time, Zai Jian. Goodbye.